Okay, hi, this is Danielle Karopkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada for webyeshiva.org. We are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, um, and we are in the third section on chapter 14. We are continuing um, a, a very lengthy discussion that the Rambam has embarked upon over the last several chapters uh, about the dilemma of the existence of evil in our existence. If after all, God is ultimately good and is only responsible for goodness, why is it and how is it that we find the existence of evil to be present in our world? Um, and instead of using a theodicy argument, the Rambam sort of takes a, a very decidedly different approach. Um, his approach is that the existence of evil is relatively minor consigned to the human condition. But when you look at the larger universe, you do not see evil, you rather see perfection. You see goodness and perfection. Um, and this has been the approach that the Rambam has taken over the last couple of chapters, and we've spent a lot of time on it already. But his, his basic approach is that when you think about the role of human beings in the larger framework of the entire universe, you come to the conclusion that man is quite insignificant. And that's why we've named the title of uh, this chapter is that uh, the role of man, um, uh, or uh, I guess you could say the vastness of the cosmos demonstrates man's insignificance. And, and here the Rambam wants to demonstrate, um, basically look out in the universe, see the vastness of the cosmos, and all of the celestial bodies and how distant they are from us and how huge the universe is. And you look at man, therefore, as a very, very tiny little blip in the larger framework of an entire universe. And that only minimizes the existence of evil further because since, as he's demonstrated in the previous chapter, man ultimately is responsible for evil, for the, for the vast majority of evil that exists and not God, then reducing man to a very, very tiny, tiny little particle within the larger framework of the entire uh, uh, creation enterprise uh, further minimizes and diminishes the existence of evil in the world. So that's where the Rambam is going with this. I'm going to share with you my screen so that you'll be able to see sort of a, a breakdown of the um, of this chapter break it broken down into into sort of sort of uh, little uh, morsels. Um, I want to remind you that if you're listening to this uh, in an audio file, um, you can always download the handouts that we talk about um, uh, in in one of two places, either in the Facebook group Shiur in Morena Vuchim, and we always recommend that you join that group if you're on social media because a it's free. B, we won't bother you, um, and C, uh, you have you you get reminders of when we're we're having shear, when we're not having shear, um, and uh, and then the other place where you can download the hand handout is on webyeshiva.org, their website, um, in the course description for chapter uh, section three, chapter fourteen. Well, the Rambam starts off in this chapter discussing astronomy, and we already know he says that the diameter of the earth and when we compare the distance to the dist to the to uh, 
the distance of the between the Earth and the highest part of the Saturn sphere, the distance is vastly greater than the entire diameter of the Earth. In other words, we know that the Earth is a is a very large body. It's our planet, but at the same time, taking the diameter of the Earth and comparing it to the distance between the Earth and Saturn, which is the highest of the planetary bodies. Now remember, uh, the Rambam is an astronomer. He's already detailed in his Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah his understanding of the Ptolemaic planetary system where the Earth is in the center, surrounded by invisible concentric spheres embedded within each sphere, is either a planet, the sun, the moon, or the stars. Um, and then, and, and that takes up the first seven of these concentric spheres that revolve around the planet Earth. Um, the eighth and the ninth spheres, um, the eighth sphere is the, contains the stars, the ninth sphere contains a, 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 um, an invisible sphere that is not actually, uh, does not contain any celestial bodies, but rather is responsible for the motion back and forth of all of the other spheres that revolve around our planet. Um, uh, with this in mind, the Rambam says, if you look out at the sky and you're just even looking at the planetary bodies, forget about the stars for a second, just think about the planets, you'll discover that the highest planet that's out there, which is the Saturn sphere, um, is very, very distant from us, extremely distant from us. And the way that the Rambam starts off this chapter, I'll just read the first sentence, what man ought also to consider in order to know what his own soul is worth, meaning to so the insignificance of the human condition when compared to the rest of the universe, and to make no mistake regarding this point, it is what has been made clear concerning the dimensions of the spheres and of the stars and the measures of the distances separating us from them. So the Rambam says specifically, it would take 8,700 years to travel from Earth to the outer rim of the Saturn sphere. Now, uh, what, what is the Rambam talking about? He's not speaking in terms of distance. He's speaking in terms of time. Now, there, there is this concept in ancient and medieval astronomy that you measure things in terms of time. We actually use measurements in terms of time even in modern science. We talk about very, very far away places in terms of light years because it would take you a year traveling at the speed of light in order to get to a certain place. So this concept actually finds its root in ancient and medieval astronomy as well. Um, astronomers talked about reaching a place in terms of years, not in terms of distance, because they understood that the human being travels at a certain rate of speed over the course of one day. You multiply that by 365 days and you get not a light year, but you get a man year. In other words, how far can a person walk in a full year, assuming that a person walks at the average pace. So basically using that measurement, it would take a human being, if he could in theory walk from uh, Earth to the outer rim of the Saturn sphere, it would take 8,700 years, which is a very, very far distance as we'll explain in just a minute. We'll see how much that is in meals. A meal is approximately a kilometer. 
as it turns out, momentarily. Now, the Talmud's figure is that it takes 7,000 years, and this is something that we'll see in just a moment. It takes, first of all, the Talmud says that it takes a human being uh, uh, one day to walk 40 mils. A person can walk 40 mils or approximately 40 kilometers over the course of one day. Uh, you'd have to be walking for the entire day from dawn until nightfall. Amar Rav Barchana, Amar Rav Yochanan, therefore the Talmud states in Tractate Psachim, Kama Mahalich Adam Biyom, how far can a person walk in the day? Asara Parsaot, 10 parsas. A parsa is four mil. Hence, a person can walk 40 mils over the course of the day. We won't go through all of the breakdown because of time constraints. That means that in a year, uh, using that measurement of 40 mils per day, a person can walk 14,600 mils per day. In 500 years, a person could walk 7.3 million mils. Now, obviously, no one lives 500 years, but you'll see how the number is fi uh, 500 is significant in just a moment. Now, <clears throat> the Talmud continues in Tractate Psachim to tell us that each celestial sphere is 500 years of using um, man years, is 500 years thick, and there's a space of 500 years between each sphere. Now, the Rambam will point out to us that when we talk about a space between each sphere, it doesn't literally mean a space because as the Rambam had established before based on Aristotelian science, there is no vacuum that exists between one sphere and the other. They're all actually, um, I guess, I don't know if the word is rubbing against each other, but, but actually right up against each other because each sphere is really a series of, uh, of concentric spheres that um, sort of connect to each other. Um, and, uh, and therefore, when, we, when the Talmud says that it takes 500 years to get from one sphere to the other, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a, a space in between, but not a vacuum space, but a space that's occupied by the trajectory of other planetary bodies that are contained within each sphere. That's what it seems to be. But in any event, the Talmud says, Tashma da'amar Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, matshuva heshivato bat kola uto rasha b'sha'a amar. What did the heavenly voice respond to the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, that wicked man, when he stated, as is quoted by Isaiah, I will go up to the highest places that are up in the cloud. I will resemble the Most High. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sort of audaciously said that he had the same province as God himself, that he had, would be able to go up to the highest places where God resides. So Yatzeta Batkol Va'amrlo, a heavenly voice came out against Nebuchadnezzar and said to him, Rasha ben Rasha ben Benoshel Nimrod Rasha, you are such an evil person descended from the evil Nimrod. He was the one who was responsible for the Tower of Babel, of trying to be able to meet God up in the highest of places. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are trying to do the same. How long does the average person live in the ancient world? As King David had said in the Psalms, an average person lives 70 years. A mighty person can live 80 years. So he says, 
based on that, to get to traverse the distance from the planet Earth to the innermost celestial sphere would take 500 years. And the thickness of that sphere is another 500 years. And the distance between each sphere is 500 years. And similarly, between each firmament, which is not clear what, what that firmament means, perhaps according to the Rambam, it's referring to these Aristotelian celestial spheres. Ach el Shaol Tered el So instead of you going up to the highest places, Nebuchadnezzar, there's no way that you could possibly live that long, even if you were going to construct yourself a craft that could get you there. It's impossible for you to get there, certainly on your own two feet. But even if even if you could walk theoretically in a vertical position all the way up to the highest sphere, you couldn't possibly live that long. You wouldn't even be able to get uh, even halfway to the innermost celestial sphere. Now, based on this, according to the Rambam's understanding of astronomy, Saturn is the seventh sphere and the highest planetary sphere. And this is something that he details in Hilchot Yisodeh HaTorah, chapter three in his Mishnah Torah. Um, and he lists all of the uh, uh, celestial spheres. If you'll note, he says, the seventh sphere is the Saturn sphere. And therefore, taking into account the mathematics, if each sphere is 500 years thick, uh, and it takes 500 years to go from the ground to the innermost rim of the first sphere, then traversing the entire first sphere would take a thousand years, 500 years to get there, and another 500 years to go from the innermost rim to the outermost rim of that sphere. It would then take a thousand years to traverse each subsequent celestial sphere, so it would take you 7,000 years uh, to get to the, the Saturn sphere. That's basically because you're multiplying seven times a thousand because Saturn is the seventh sphere. Using that calculation, it would take 102.2 million mils. Uh, that would be the distance calculated. Now, the Rambam gives a different calculation, and he doesn't really say where he gets this from, but he assumes it's established science. It takes 8,700 man years to get, according to our knowledge of science, to get from the, the surface of the Earth to the, the Saturn rim, which is... Uh, and he doesn't explain the discrepancy. Later on in the chapter, he does. But that would be 127 million mils, approximately. Now, if you want to know the true distance between the Earth and Saturn, I looked this up on the internet. It's 1.2 billion kilometers at its closest when, you know, the, uh, I guess, the Saturn in its orbit gets the closest to the Earth. It, it that's, the, that's the minimum distance between um, Earth and Saturn. So we're off by a, a magnitude of 10 uh, using uh, Aristotelian science and the, and sort of the Ptolemaic planetary system, which is completely different from the way that we understand astronomy today. So therefore, it's not surprising that the numbers are wildly off in a, by a magnitude of 10. But the point being is that you can certainly apply the Rambam's ideas uh, using modern science, because if the whole objective of this chapter is to demonstrate the vastness of the universe, of the cosmos, to show how insignificant man is. And we've just pointed out 
that the Rambam is off by a magnitude of 10, then using modern science and now using the Hubble telescope and now the new Webb telescope that has just been put into motion and is now capturing new pictures of the vastness of the universe. We just captured a picture of something that is 2.3 billion light years away from us. Um, and to be able to look at that and to see the huge infinitude almost of the of the cosmos going back to the earliest times of the Big Bang, which is really the goal of the Webb telescope to be able to capture images that bring us back to the earliest moment uh, in the history of the Big Bang, because the further away we get, the, the farther away we get in terms of time as well as what we can capture visually. So uh, you see how insignificant man is in the larger framework of all of creation. Now he says, scripture draws an analogy between the great distance between man and the spheres to the vast distance between man and God. And the Rambam wants, just wants to make a point of saying that we've demonstrated how, in, how tiny, how, how, what a tiny particle man is in terms of the entire universe. Think about how distant therefore man is from God. Not spatially, because the Rambam has already established that God is not space, does not occupy any spatial place, but in terms of being able to comprehend God, who was so distant conceptually from man, as it says in the book of Job, Halo Eloka Gova Shamayim Ki Ramu. God is in the highest levels of the heavens, meaning that the diff, the distance between man and God is so vast only confirming or only corroborating the Rambam's whole thesis that since man is the source of, of all evil in the world, his distance from God, who is the ultimately perfect and good being, uh, is so distant. So now, up until now, and this is in the middle of the chapter now, the Rambam says, we've only discussed the planetary spheres. We go beyond the planetary spheres to the eighth sphere, which is the star sphere. That's even thicker and therefore even more distant for man to traverse. Ultimately, he says, we don't even know for certain whether these distances are accurate, but we know that these are minimal measurements, but can actually be more distant in reality. The Rambam certainly is acknowledging that so much of astronomy in his time is speculative because they lacked the instrumentation to be able to gauge planetary bodies with absolute accuracy. They only had the, the naked eye to be able to measure these things. And therefore the Rambam acknowledges that what we are saying are, these are the minimal distances. It could be they're actually much more distant than we have stated. The Rambam of course is certainly accurate in that statement because as we've mentioned, Saturn is actually much more distant than the way the Talmud or even the Rambam depicts it. And he says, and I quote, consider how vast are the dimensions and how great the number of these corporeal beings of these planetary bodies. If or these celestial spheres, if the whole of the earth would not constitute even the smallest part of the sphere of the fixed stars, in other words, the whole earth can't is, is the whole diameter of the entire planet uh, does not even cover uh, the distance uh, or the thickness of the star sphere. What is the relation of the human species to all these created things? And how can one of us imagine that they exist for his sake? And because of him, and that, and because of him, and that they are instruments for his benefit. So, for anyone to actually think that this, that the vastness of the cosmos exists for the sake of man, the Rambam is really only re reaffirming 
or reinforcing what he had said in chapter 13, that it is impossible to suggest that all of the, the vastness of space exists for the sake of man. And remember in our previous discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that the Rambam seems to contradict himself because in his um, commentary to, in his introduction to the Mishnah, the Rambam did argue that all of exist, all of physical existence, including the celestial bodies, exist for the sake of man. Here, the Rambam directly refutes that issue, uh, that that assertion, as he did in the previous chapter. We're not going to rehash that argument, but basically, he says there's no way when you really truly consider the vastness of the cosmos that you could ever say that everything exists for the sake of this puny being man who is the source of all evil in the world. And as I mentioned in the, in the, in the uh, parentheses, uh, taking this and applying this to our knowledge of, of um, astro, astronomy and the cosmos, cosmology uh, in, the modern, in modern science and using the instrumentation that we have to see the true vastness of the universe, this argument only becomes amplified in the modern age. Now, when considering the intellects of the spheres, man's insignificance is even more acute. Up until now, the Rambam has been talking about corporeal bodies, bodies that have some level of matter, some kind of matter, even though it's celestial matter, which as he's established, is different from terrestrial matter, but nonetheless corporeal. Um, take into account the intellectual sentient um, intelligences that are associated with the celestial bodies. As the Rambam has established using Aristotelian science, these are the consciousnesses of these celestial bodies that are responsible for their motion. As we pointed out from the philosophical perspective, therefore, it is impossible for a higher level organism to exist for the sake of a lower level organism. That we've established already in the previous chapter. I refer you back to the Rambam's comments on page 454 in the Pines edition. But even if you subscribe to the, to the idea, as many Jews do, says the Rambam, including, and I'll just put that in parentheses because the Rambam seems to ignore what he had written in his Mishnah commentary. So I say, including the Rambam himself in his introduction to the Mishnah, that all organisms of this universe exist to serve man, you are still forced to a specific conclusion. Even if you're going to argue that everything that exists is for the sake of mankind, if one were to suggest that all the stars and intelligences exist for the sake of each individual person, can a person truly say, like the Mishnah says, Bishvili nivraha ulam, the world was created for my sake, and mean that literally, that all of the stars and all of the cosmos exist for me? If you're going to suggest that, says the Rambam, then this would be as absurd logically as suggesting that an artisan manufactured huge iron tools in order to manufacture one needle. Now, you do need a certain amount of tool uh, of tooling in order to manufacture a needle. But if you're only going to manufacture one needle, does it make sense to say that you would put together a whole factory of machinery in order to manufacture one needle? That's absurd. Why would God create an entire cosmos for the sake of one individual? One could only therefore conclude that the huge iron tools and all of the factory materials exist to manufacture a huge amount of needles, in which case the cost and effort of manufacturing the huge tools could be justified. Thus, even according to this doctrine, that you want to suggest that everything that exists in the cosmos is there for the sake of man, 
the celestial organisms exist to perpetuate the human species in general, but no single individual human being can state that the stars are for him specifically. Once again, the Rambam is diminishing, is reducing the significance of any individual human being, trying to marginalize humanity as a whole, um, because even if you're going to argue that the cosmos exists for humanity, it's only for the purpose of perpetuating the human species through the celestial body's motion, causing mankind to be in some way affected, which was the medieval belief that astronomy influences, the, the stars actually influence man's growth and, uh, and well-being and maintenance and so forth. But nonetheless, it's only for the sake of maintaining a perpetuation of mankind, not any individual human being. But then the Rambam says, but I still don't buy it. He says, even this analogy of the iron tools is flawed. It's one thing to justify a large mass of tools to be manufactured for an even larger mass of needles. So you can, you can justify investing a lot of money into a factory to manufacture needles if you're going to be manufacturing a huge amount of needles, so you'll make money. But add to the mix that not only are the celestial beings much larger than man, but they are also of a more noble substance than man. And as he's demonstrated philosophically in, in the last chapter, it would be most disgraceful if what is nobler served as an instrument for the existence of what is most base and vile. So it's one thing to say from a cost analysis, from a mass analysis, that you, know, you could perhaps justify uh, manufacturing a large amount of machinery in order to produce a large amount of product. But that's if it's apples to apples, we're just talking about mass or we're just talking about cost. But what if, you, what if the substance of the tool is so noble and so much more uh, superior in its essential makeup of what we would call perhaps either holiness or of a more noble uh, substance than man, which is made up of a more coarse uh, uh, ingredient uh, of matter, then it wouldn't make sense for God to put into motion a very, very lofty substance in order to manufacture a much cruder substance. That makes no sense. Normally you would say that you have crude substances that help in the refining of noble substances and not the other way around. And it's on based on that that the Rambam says, even using the, uh, the, the iron tool analogy to manufacture needles, it's a flawed argument and cannot sim simply cannot be applied to the existence of the celestial bodies for the sake of man. Based on the above logical inconsistencies, the Rambam says, very cryptically, I would add, we see another proof to the Torah's account of creation versus the Aristotelian model of eternal existence, which was my main objective in this chapter. Now, this comes out of left field. We don't really see why the Rambam makes this point of saying everything that I've said up until now corroborates this idea that God created the world ex nihilo and refutes the Aristotelian idea that the universe has eternally existed. So I'm just, I'm going to cut to the chase for the sake of time. Rav Kafech in his footnotes to his edition of the Mora Nevuchim says that the earlier commentaries are mistaken in their analysis of this uh, line. And he therefore suggests as follows, only a belief in eternal existence can justify a belief that the higher organisms of the cosmos exist for the sake of man. 
since eternal existence implies a series of emanations from the highest to the lowest that has been going on for, for time immemorial in a chain that originates from above and goes from the top to the down. It goes from top down, it goes from the highest sources of emanation uh, down to the lowest celestial or lowest terrestrial beings. But a belief in creation must be logical that a higher organism should not exist for the sake of a lower organism. And basically, the, the, the logical argument only works that man uh, is not the ultimate purpose of or, or objective of creation if you believe that God created each individual component of existence for its own sake. If you believe that we are just part of a series of emanations that is happening automatically, then perhaps you could justify this idea that everything else that exists in this chain of emanation is there for the sake of the final emanation in our terrestrial world of everything that exists on our planet. But if you're going to believe that everything exists for its own sake independently, then it's necessary to conclude that the stars do not exist for the sake of man. Now, the Rambam then says, that was my first objective, which was to only bolster and corroborate the theory of uh, creation or the, the Torah's assertion that the world was created by God willfully with purpose. My second objective in this chapter, says the Rambam, is to defend the sages' depiction of the cosmos, despite, despite the slight inconsistency between their measurement of 7,000 years from the Earth to Saturn and our present-day calculation of 8,700 years from the Earth to Saturn. Now, I would suggest to you, my friends, those of you who are listening, this is the most important part of the chapter because what the Rambam is about to tell us has huge repercussions in how we view the Torah versus science dialectic or this, the, this, this tension that exists between Torah and science. What do you do when you find a discrepancy between what the sages say and between what modern science tells us? Now, this has been the backdrop. This has been sort of the latent, implicit background of everything that the Rambam has written in Morena Vilchim, because the Rambam is an Aristotelian, believes that almost everything that Aristotle says is accurate in his depiction of the universe. Um, and what do we do when we encounter conflict between what modern science says and what the Torah says? Um, specifically here, what the sages in their Torah Shabalpen, the oral tradition, say about scientific reality. There will be times when we'll have to conclude that the sages were not speaking literally, but rather metaphorically. We might also have to conclude that, um, uh, that science could be, let's say, not completely accurate in our day, as the Rambam did say when discussing uh, cosmology, uh, uh, Aristotle's depiction of the cosmological model may be somewhat, uh, may have some flaws in it because no one's been able to actually go up and measure what's going on in the cosmos. He did mention that also earlier in the Moren of Uchim in section two of the, of the guide. But there are there is one basic approach that the Rambam takes at the last paragraph of this chapter, which is extremely important for us to get our heads around if we're going to understand the Rambam's worldview. And that is one might have originally studied the passage of Talmud and thought that the sages were exaggerating. But in reality, based on our modern measurements, we've actually come to support 
that the, the distances that the rabbis talk about are not at all exaggerated. The more we learn in science, the more we see how consistent the sages often were with science. In this case, our scientific data shows that the distance between Earth and the lower part of Saturn, meaning the inner rim of Saturn, is 7,024 years, a figure that is uncannily close to that of the sages. Now, why did I say 8,700 years when it's really 7,024? So th this too is not a discrepancy because the sages were discussing the distance from Earth to the bottom edge, the inner edge of the Saturn sphere, whereas I was discussing going all the way up to the edge of the eighth star sphere, traversing the entire sphere of Saturn. And therefore, it's almost like another thousand years of travel, another thousand man years of travel. So that's where I get to the number 8,700. Now, I want to remind you, we don't know specifically where the Rambam gets this number 8,700. We can only surmise that it is based upon the modern science of his time using the astronomy books that are at his disposal. But the bottom line is what the Rambam is trying to do is basically say that if you ever read something that you in, in the Talmud that seems to be incorrect scientifically, look at it more carefully and you may discover that the sages have not erred at all but it is rather your reading of that passage and your understanding of science that may be somewhat off, may be somewhat uh, inaccurate. Now, regarding the sage's knowledge of astronomy and science in general, the final paragraph of this chapter presents the Rambam's view on scientific errors found in Chazal, and therefore it is important for us to read it inside. Let's take a look on page 459, this last paragraph, it's so important to read this inside. He says, despite everything that I've said, there will be times when we may find in the words of the sages that they've actually made an error. He says, do not ask of me to show that everything they have said concerning astronomical matters conforms to the way things really are. For at that time, mathematics were imperfect. In the times of our sages who lived a thousand years before me, says the Rambam, they did not have a perfect knowledge of mathematics as we do today. They did not speak about this as transmitters of dicta of the prophets, but rather because in those times they were men of knowledge in these fields or because they had heard these dicta from the men of knowledge who lived in those times. In other words, when the rabbis depict astronomical models, or scientific models, or medical models. They are not suggesting that this information came to them from the Nevi'im, from the prophets. All they're doing is, is relaying the, the scientific data that was available to them in their time. Now, this is huge, what the Rambam is saying over here. Some might even accuse the Rambam of heresy for this statement. He is suggesting that the sages were limited to the scientific knowledge of their time and that they did not possess a greater knowledge of science than what was available to their era. And therefore, if you ever find the rabbis making a mistake in scientific knowledge based on our more modern and current knowledge of technology and science, you should not take them to task. This is not a, a, a stain on our Torah Mesorah, on our transmission of truths that came from the Torah, because that was not part of the transmission that the rabbis received. 
They are simply reflecting upon what was known at that time in, from the realm of science, either because the sages themselves were scientists, as we know, people like Shmuel in the Talmud are known as great astronomers, or because they had received this knowledge from great scientists of their times. Okay, because of this, I will not say with regard to dicta of theirs, which as we find corresponds to the truth, that they are incorrect or have been said fortuitously. But he says, despite that, even though the rabbis may have not had as much accuracy in their knowledge as we have today, because they had greater limitations in scientific knowledge a thousand years ago, that's not alone a basis for saying that whenever we find them saying something that seems inaccurate, we can just dismiss it. No, not at all. I will still try and find reconciliation between modern science and what the sages say. It is only when I'm pushed up against a brick wall and I have no other choice that I will resign myself to the possibility that the rabbis were basing themselves on flawed science based on the limitations of their era. He says, whenever it's possible to reconcile our sages with science, we should strive to do so. In this sense, even this is sort of implicit, he said, I am unlike Aristotle, the Rambam is saying, who tended to knock his predecessor's knowledge. Just one example of this is what the Rambam writes in Metaphysics Book One. He's talking about how uh, Greek philosophers who preceded him were not perfect in their understanding. These thinkers, as we say, evidently grasped, and to this extent, two of the causes which we distinguished or which we identified in our work on nature, the matter and the source of the movement, they only identified these things vaguely and with no clearness, but as untrained men behave in fights. It, you see two people getting into a, uh, a boxing match, but they're not professional boxers. So once in a while, a guy may connect with, the other, with, his, with his opponent and get, a, get in a lucky punch, but they do not fight on scientific principles. So too, these thinkers do not seem to know what they say, for it is evident that as a rule, they make no use of their causes except to a small extent. Basically, he's, uh, Aristotle was known to sort of dismiss earlier philosophers uh, in the Greek world because he felt that they were not as developed and sophisticated as he was in their scientific analysis. The Rambam will not take that approach. If the Rambam can find reconciliation between modern science and the words of the sages, he will always try to do so. That said, if we ever do find a discrepancy, we should not say that this is a flaw in Torah. This is simply a flaw in what the rabbis had access to based on the math and astronomy and science and medicine of their time. This is huge. This is a very, very important statement of the Rambam. It actually should inform everything that we learn in the Rambam throughout Moren of Uchim and throughout the Rambam's writings. And it should also help guide us in the modern world. Whenever someone tries to be dismissive of the words of the sages to say how provincial these rabbis thinking was because of their depiction of cosmology, of cosmogony, of, uh, of nature, of medicine, of the elements, and so forth. This is not a knock against um, Judaism or Jewish knowledge or of the Torah. The rabbis were limited to scientific knowledge of their times. Is it possible that they had sometimes sparks or glimpses of, of, um, of flashes of prophetic knowledge that was not known to scientists of their time? Certainly. But at the same time, uh, the rabbis viewed everything 
that was transmitted to them and try to reconcile it with the science of their time, just as the Rambam does. And sometimes it, it works out well, sometimes it doesn't, because just as the Rambam was looking at back at the sages and noting that sometimes their scientific knowledge was limited, we look back at the Rambam, noting as well that his whole portrayal of the cosmos using a Ptolemaic planetary model it seems provincial to us, seems quite uh, uh, primitive to us today, but it is only because the Rambam was limited to the science of his time. But if the Rambam were alive today, he would have uh, had a, a completely different depiction, but he still would have sought to reconcile modern science with the Torah of the sages and the Torah itself. Much more to say on this subject, but we'll hold it here for today. And... Um, uh, we'll hopefully see you next time. Take care, everybody. Um, is there anything that somebody, anyone wanted to say before we conclude our chapter for today? If not, let me wish you a good week, and we will, Bezrat Hashem, continue next week. Take care now.